All right, Ephesians 6, 4. That's, uh, that's where we left off. That's where we've gone from time to time throughout our study of, of this material. <clears throat> of course, we've looked at a lot of things. We've looked at our priorities uh, as as disciplers, um, we have a priority to, none of this is possible. None of us can really put this into practice unless we know Jesus Christ by faith. And so we, that's the most important thing. If we don't know Jesus Christ by faith, none of this really matters. It's all just moralistic language that we try to do by our own efforts, our own willfulness, and we'll never accomplish it anyway, to the glory and honor of God, which is what God would have for us. And so our priorities is to him above all things. And then, of course, if we have a, a spouse in the home, we have a priority to our to our spouses to uh, fulfill God-given roles that he's given us in the home. And then, of course, to our family, the little ones that he has given us to care for, both in our home and extended family, because we have responsibilities and and uh, are given privileges to help uh, shepherd others around us, and then of course outside the home as well. And then of course we have goals are to be simply to be a faithful, faithful instrument in the hands of God as God uses us uh, to glorify His name in our life, but also in those who are under our care. And we, we do that through understanding that man is a depraved individual. He is born in to sin. And so from God's view, man is not good, regardless of what man says, that man is good in all that he does or can, can even accomplish good. Uh, he certainly does philanthropic things, things that might help other people. But the reason behind that, if he doesn't know Jesus Christ, is always for self. It's always to appease a conscience and to serve self and to tamp down any guilt that he might have because of his own sin. And so we have to understand God's view of man. And then, of course, God's direction to us as parents in the home. So our children are sinners. We have a responsibility to be faithful to God, to continue to point them to Jesus Christ, whatever that looks like. And there are challenges that come with that. Uh, we it's hard to have the right motivation. It's hard to have the right focus continually. It's difficult to, to maintain a balance in all of that, but God gives us by His Spirit the ability to do those things when we're faithful to Him, when we submit to Him and to His Word. And then, of course, we talked about the uh, one of the roles as a parent, and that is a disciplinarian, right? And we looked at unbiblical discipline and all of the realities of that. And many of you uh, said to me afterwards, man, I do a whole lot of those kinds of things. I need to make some changes in my own heart and life about that. And that's a good thing. And then, of course, we looked at biblical discipline, that it's loving, follows the example of God. It's how God treats us. It is loving. It is wise. And therefore, under those realities, it's, it's reasonable. It's definable. It's useful uh, to those under our care. And that's just a quick overview of all the places we've been. This morning, I just want to turn the page a little bit and talk about the second role that we have, and that is of a teacher. Of course, our theme verse for this entire study, Ephesians 6, 4, right? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the 
instruction or admonition. The word there in the original language is the same word where you hear nuthetic counseling, nuthetas or nutheteo, which just means to put into the mind. That's the, that's the idea behind that word. So we're to bring them up in the nurture and the nutheteo or put into their mind what is true and right, admonition. In other words, we build inner convictions or we help to inform, probably is a better way to say it, we inform inner convictions. Proverbs 22, 6, the first half of that says, train up a child in the way he should go, right? This is the idea. We There's a lot of different viewpoints on that verse. Um, the way he should go, people that would say that that's according to the scriptures. and But the second half of that verse says, and then when he's old, he will not depart from it. Well, there's many parents who have trained up their children according, or at least brought the truth to bear in their life, and their children have nothing to do with the scriptures this today. They're older, and they, they've said, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Well, that becomes a problem if that's what this verse actually is speaking to. And and so there's a lot of controversy as to that. Train up a child in the way he should go, I think, really talks to more according to their very makeup, who they are, as God has wired them as a person. In other words, don't try to make them into something they're not. Um, it's just about wise teaching of your children. kind of goes back to the whole issue of the wise rules and those kinds of things. So we are to be teaching. This is one of the primary means by which God uses to fulfill His direction to us in bringing our children up, right? <clears throat> now, again, the result is up to God, isn't it? We teach, but we aren't manufacturers. We're teachers. Manufacturers make things. We're not manufacturers. We don't make our children into something. The results of our teaching are up to the Lord's hand and up to the students' embracing of what is taught. And so we have to remember this as we're teaching them. But there are some things that we, that we can begin to implement when we think about teaching our children, some prerequisites, if you will, some some precursors to, to our own families. And the first is this, recognize, recognize, and I, I think this is a common sense thing, but sometimes we forget this, recognize that those under our care lack understanding and need to be taught. Sometimes I, 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 we at least carry ourselves in such a way from time to time, seemingly uh, going against that very idea. In fact, Solomon makes it very clear in Proverbs that this is why we have the Proverbs, right? Um, go to Proverbs 1. Uh, just to kind of hear the words ourselves in our own ears from Proverbs 1 as to why this is here. Right? Beginning in verse 4, Solomon's writing this. Why? To know, or beginning in verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, 
to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, and to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. Now that just tells us right there, right out of the gate, that we need instruction. We need teaching. One of the most prideful, arrogant, self-serving ideas in the heart of man is to say, I don't need to hear anymore. I don't need to be taught. I've reached the point where I don't need to learn anymore. I've got it all down. That's a dangerous reality. And yet there are people who think like that. And so, since our own children, those whom we disciple, are often immature and foolish, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, Proverbs says, then they need to grow in what Solomon says here, knowledge or wisdom and knowledge or applied knowledge, that's wisdom, right? They need to grow in what they've received. They don't know it, but they need to grow in applied knowledge, wisdom. All of us need to grow in that. So first, we have to recognize that they need teaching. Secondly, we have to realize that all learning happens incrementally. And this is another common sense thing. Happens over time. I think about, sometimes when I think about parenting, I think about pastoring. Right? It's, it's similar. It's oftentimes the same. And sometimes we as leaders in the church can get very disappointed that, that learning isn't happening quickly enough. Or we said it, why aren't they doing it? You know, kind of thing. We do that as parents, right? I said it. How can we not do it? How come I have to deal with this over and over and over again? Well, because learning is a process over time. Understanding, skilled living, wisdom happens over time. Isaiah 28 verse 10 says, God says to Israel, it's order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here and a little there. Right? This is methodology, if you will, for teaching. It's a little by little, line upon line, precept by precept, order by order. We learn about life incrementally. So that means as as parents, teaching begins the the day that little one takes their first breath. Day one. Teaching begins, and it doesn't end until you take your last breath. You realize, sometimes we think like this, right? Our kids are grown, they're out of the house, and we think parenting's done. We don't stop parenting until we're gone, until we're gone. Now, it may change. The obvious way in which that takes place changes, and the the level of influence and the amount of continual influence changes, but we're always in the process beginning from their first day till our last day. That means then learning lasts a lifetime. It's your life on their life for a lifetime. However long God allows that to happen. We don't think like that, do we? 
We don't think like that. We, we oftentimes check out. Okay, my kids are grown. They're 18, 19, 20, whatever it is. They're grown. They're out of the house. It's over. No, it's not over. Because the opportunities to teach are everywhere along the path of life. Right? As you walk by the way, as you sit down, as you rise up, as Deuteronomy clearly says to us, as we'll see. So, we let's just take the issue of purity in our children. We want our children to enter into a relationship when they're older that is a pure relationship, one in which was built on purity. Well, when does that begin? When does teaching about purity begin? Is there a certain age that that begins at? Any idea? I mean, when do you start that? You have to start you have to start at the beginning. You have to start at the youngest of ages. I was with my grandson the other day up north in Concord. And there's many people who think little children don't understand things, right? Ah, they don't understand that yet. You know, he's one, just turned one. And his father said to him, he picked up a lid off the floor. It was a lid from like a one of those candle places that goes on a candle that's in a jar. It was that lid. He said, he said, you want to put that on the candle? The candle was on the table. Now, this is a one-year-old. He got up, stood up at the table, can't even walk yet, stood up, pulled himself up, and, and went to the candle. A one-year-old. I mean, most people think, oh, my child doesn't understand when, when they're not supposed to do something. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And I guarantee you this, if you say you want a cookie, they know exactly what that is. People, They understand. So... When do we start teaching on the important subjects of purity, right? Well, we don't give the, the ins and outs about, as we call them, the birds and the bees or the facts of life to a two-year-old. But we can begin to show them and model what purity is, what it looks like, what they see in the home, what they're exposed to. So all those concepts about that and what physical intimacy is supposed to be when you're older, you know, listen, our children are watching, aren't they? They're watching. They see everything. We say, well, they're so young, they don't, it really doesn't matter if I get dressed in front of them. Well, they may not be able to express it, but they're seeing something. They're seeing things that may or may not be. Uh, their little minds are able to process. Let me ask you a solid question. All of us have had past lives in our before Christianity, sinful things. Can you get rid of those images in your mind? How many of those images right now, just because I mentioned it, popped up in your head? They're there. They're there. They may fade over time. The more you rehearse them, the stronger those they are. The less you rehearse them, the more they fade, but they're there. They're there. Well, when did they start? It's, it's very, very young. Very, very young. So you have to be careful what you expose them to. Uh, listening to the comments of just strangers in a grocery store or in some other place. They're exposed to that. You have to be careful to that. What they hear on the television or coming through a computer or a song or something like that. 
All of that is cumulative. All of that is progressive. Right? And a wise parent monitors and takes care of all that, realizing that all of that is incremental learning, building, and there it's being stored away. So little by little, bit by bit, day by day, year by year, being absorbed. Number three, we have to, re- we have to require that those in our home under our discipleship exercise self-control when they're being taught. We have to require that they exercise self-control when they're taught. Um, far too often, I think, we're, we're overly attentive to the outward behavior and less attentive to the heart that drives that behavior. And we need to be attentive to the heart that drives the behavior more so than the outward behavior. Self-control is a heart issue. It's an issue of the heart. And so we have to require that those under our care exercise self-control. Right? That means when you're teaching them, they ought to be at their age of sitting still. Sitting still, undistracted. Undistracted. Require them to be undistracted, to sit still. Require them to bridle their tongue. No words. That was a favorite line in our home when our kids were little. No words. No words. You don't get to speak right now. No words. Or using appropriate language in their response to others. And also self-controlled in their minds. They're paying careful attention to, to what you are teaching. Proverbs 18, verse 15. The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. This is what we're wanting to instill in our our children. Now, some of us will struggle with that because we have developed patterns in our own life that are unattentive and and lack self-control. We haven't built a a principled life in our own life of self-control, and so we sometimes don't even recognize a lack of self-control in those whom we're discipling. And so God is using all of that to even help train us up. And of course, self-control comes is is a is a is the exercise of spiritual gift, right? I mean of uh, the fruit of the spirit, right? Self-control. So it is a progressive reality. It's progressive over time, carefully as we walk through situations in that area, we are teaching self-control. And I'll just say this, when when young people have no self-control, it's very hard to teach them. Just ask people who work in our children's ministry here. If your child is lacks self-control, they're very difficult to teach. 
right? So you, you must do that. Um, if you're constantly having to tell your children after requiring them to listen, hey, you need to listen. If, you're, if, it's, if it's continual and there's no seemingly progressive advancement in that, you need to maybe apply some different uh, areas in which discipline comes about. Require a greater uh, standard of discipline than maybe you are. By the way, turn to just look at some examples of self-control in Scripture. Matthew, first of all, Matthew twenty-six. Matthew 26, verse 62. Jesus, of course, has been arrested. He's under trial. 62, the high priest stands up and says to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? And what's Jesus? Jesus just kept silent. Self-control. Self-control. Why? Because like we hear Peter say, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. He exercised self-control simply because he was submissive to the will of the Father. Go over to Matthew 27. Or I mean, uh, yeah, Matthew 27. Look at verse 12 through 14. Jesus again is before Pilate. Verse 11, and while he was being accursed or accused by the chief priests and the elders, he made no answer. Pilate says, don't you hear these things they are testifying against you? Aren't you going to give an answer? He didn't give an answer in regard to a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Amazed at his self-control, his lack of Willingness to go outside the care of his father. In the Old Testament, we see similar things. First Samuel chapter 10. Saul has been publicly chosen as the king. Verse 27, certain, certain worthless men said, how can this, this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. Once again, self-control. So those are just prerequisites, if you will, for us to, to be able to effectively, or at least have a greater uh, groundwork for teaching our children. Recognize they need it. Realize that learning comes over time. It's a process and require them to exercise self-control. But it gets more specific, I guess, when it comes to those things, even though we know those prerequisites. The question is, how do we teach then? How do we teach our children and what do we teach them? So how do we 
teach? Well, the first way we teach, again, we know this. This is not new to us. But we teach by way of example. Probably the most profound way we teach, we teach by way of example, the testimony of our life teaches our children. So think about it. If you want your children to see what Christ is like and how Christ interacts with the life of a sinner, then ask yourself, do I live out what I believe in my life? Is my life practicing before my children what I say I believe? Right? Paul said, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, right? I live out Christ. He is the reflection of my life. And so that means I'm living out what it means to look like a saved person, a Christian. What does a Christian look like when they live? Do they live like the world? Do they look like the world? How God has blessed us, how His ongoing care in our life looks and causes us to grow in greater love for Him. How often do you talk to your children about your own sinfulness and how God has forgiven you and your own repentance? You're teaching by way of example. I don't know about you, Mike. My kids, when they were younger, loved to hear about my failures. They loved it. It helped them see that, you know what, dad's not a perfect guy. This isn't just, oh, I said it, look, be like me. This was, listen, I, there's a God over me. There's an authority in which I must live under. And so you have to they learn by example, right? You act, they watch. You act, they watch. Right? You act, there comes a time then when they don't, don't just watch, now they get to help. You're doing something, now they're helping in it. They grow up, mature. Then they act, and you as a parent get to help. So they've learned something. They've watched you, they've They've helped you in the act, then they've learned enough to be able to act, and now you watch. You're coaching. The older they get, now you're coaching them. Russ.
That's a great point, and I think it would do us all well to realize that whether we want to be a teacher or not, we are. As people, period, we are, because of that very principle. Somebody's watching. Somebody's learning. Somebody is, is seeing and, and receiving influence from me, regardless of where I'm at. Whether I'm a formal teacher or not, I'm teaching. Whether I have people under my care formally or not, I'm teaching. Right? That's a reality for all of us. I think one of the most impactful things you can do with your children, by the way, in the home to teach by way of example, is confess your sin where you've wronged them. Not many parents go to their children and say, will you forgive me for how I treated you? We just don't do that. They're the kid. I'm the adult. I'm not doing that. What are you talking about? I'm telling you what. We show them the God we serve, the God we are humbled under. I've said this to people throughout the ages. You want to, you want to show your children a love for the body of Christ, the church, the, the reality that Christ died for? Then show them by your example of how you love the church how you love the church, how you serve the church, how you serve the body of Christ. Tell you what, they will learn something. They may not follow it. Again, the results are up to God. But we want them to have a clear picture of who God is in our life. And that comes oftentimes in many ways by example. How will we carry ourselves in the home, even in the mundane tasks? Our children learn by way of example, right? How you... 
uh, keep the home, your children will learn how they want to or don't want to keep the home. But they're learning. They're learning something. How you, you know, whatever your character issues are, they're going to see them, know them, all of those things. All areas of learning. And we must, we must remember that that's the case, that we are a teacher. They're living by example. We're, they're learning, I should say, by example. We're living an example out before them. So it's an example, but it's also we teach in life situations. That's number two. We teach in life situations, right? These are the walk by the way. When you rise up, when you lie down, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. God was relaying to the nation of Israel through Moses the things they should teach their children, the law of God, the things of God, they should teach them. When do we teach them those? Well, in life situations, throughout all the milieu of life. Everyday situations in life, we are to continually be teaching our children. The environment around us, whatever's happening around us, is all an opportunity. And so in times of crisis, we teach our children about how to handle trials. How do we walk through trials as we trust the Lord, whether it's some kind of sorrow that comes out, whether it's some kind of failure in our life, whether it's some kind of issue that they're having because they go to some public school or some other Christian school or they're not schooled in the home or whatever. Maybe it's a problem in their homeschool situation. How do we handle those kinds of problems? Do we just throw our hands up and say, I quit? Do we just throw our hands up and say it's too difficult of a situation? I'm going to pull myself out? How do we handle those? All of those situations during the milieu of life, we have to talk about, think through, search the Word of God. Right? What about decisions being made? Life decisions, life-altering decisions, big decisions, small decisions. How do you make those decisions? What's the best way to go through it? How about difficulty with friends, trouble with their own peers, school and otherwise, how we work through those things, God, in a biblical way. Do you set the example for that and how you deal with trouble when you have interpersonal problems with people around you, people in your own circle of friendships? How do you deal with it? What do you talk about in their hearing when you're in the house, when you're at home, when you're in the car? What do you talk about? Do you gossip about those other people or do you... Try to keep their hearts pure from all of those kinds of things. And in that doing, God teaching you that you're to deal with these things in a Christ-honoring way. So all of those situations, what about the current events in our world today? What are you talking about with your kids about those? How to handle those? Are they seeing you handle them like the old funny motto that I've said before in our home used to be, when in trouble, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout? Is that what they see? Or do they see wisdom, settledness, trusting in the Lord, thinking through it, helping them understand why wickedness rules in the world today and how we are to respond to those things? So life situations are opportunities to demonstrate both the power of God and the relevance of God's Word to the situations of life. 
everyday situations. There's not a day that goes by that there's not something that God is putting before you, a challenge, helping you grow in your own faith so that you can now model that and help to instruct those under your care. Proverbs 20 in verse 5 tells us a pl- the plan a plan in the heart of a man is like deep water but a man of understanding draws it out right what kind of questions during the life do you ask your kids are you drawing out their heart are you drawing out their mind drawing out their thinking Remember, I used to ask my, my kids when they were younger, especially when they professed to know Jesus, when most kids at a young age might do that, especially if they grew up in a home that has a Christian influence in any kind of way, like many of your kids do. I used to ask my kids, tell me, tell me what in your life, help me understand what in your life convinces you that you know Jesus Christ. What's the reflection in your life by way of your own walk that convinces you that you truly know Jesus Christ? What was I trying to ask them? I was trying to help them be able to articulate an understanding of the gospel and what that means in a life. And it isn't just saying I believe in Jesus. What convinced you? Well, I prayed a prayer. What convinced you? Well, I go to church. What convinces you you're saved? Well, I'm a good person. We hear those kind of answers all the time from people who don't ever go to church. I'm a good person, right? If that's what convinces you you're saved, well, this is an opportunity for us now to open the Scripture and say, well, here's what a Christian is. Here's what a Christian looks like. Here's how a Christian thinks. Here's how a Christian walks. These are all opportunities, right? God's Word is relevant and Questions like that draw out, draw out the thought, draw out their thinking, draw out what's going on, which not many of us like to do because that means I have to actually think. I have to actually engage my mind on, on, on a deeper level than I'm normally liking to, to operate because normally we operate on a surface level, very surface So this helps. So we teach by life situations. Third, we teach by asking questions and getting answers. Yes. Yeah. Example to me of how we are to be teaching those who are under 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, if you knew nothing about parenting, let's say you just lived isolated and you had a Bible and you truly were a believer, you knew nothing. You never sat in a class, you never whatever, you know, your parents left you in a in a somewhere and there was never any modeling for parenting. Simply reading the gospels would teach you everything you needed to know about how to parent. Following how Jesus lived. Following what Jesus did. You would do well. You would do very well as a parent to live that way and and do what Jesus did. Right? And and we're I don't want to say we have more than that, because what could be more than that? But we have others that God has allowed us to have in our life as examples, and we can come together and sharpen one another and challenge one another and think through things and clearly like that so that we're an example to one another and help each other. So that's one way. Um, the other way is, of course, um, questions and answers. Can I ask those who have older kids, how many times have you asked your kids to evaluate their friends? Million. Million? <laughs> evaluate your friends. I used to ask my, I used to exhort my kids that they needed to pick friends that were going to bring them up, not bring them down. And I said, and I want you to evaluate your friends in that way. And, and if you're unwilling to do that, then I'm going to pick your friends for you. And they didn't want that. You know, they didn't want to have anything to do with that. You know, dad picks my friends. Are you kidding me? You know, he pick people just like him. And we want to go be, you know. So it was a challenge for them to help evaluate. I wanted them to evaluate the character and nature of their friendships based upon what they've been taught, based upon what the scripture said. Certainly they didn't know Christ at those ages, but, but these principles are still the standard. Right? They're the standard. And so ask them that. Why do you hang out with the friends you hang out with? How are they leading you to a greater Christ-likeness? How are they leading you in a direction towards that? And if they're not, then why are you hanging out? What is it in your heart that draws you there? All those questions are thoughtful questions, right? Ask them Bible questions. Explain to me what the gospel is. You sat in church a hundred times. You've heard Sunday school teachers and other people and friends share. What is the gospel? Ask him that. Ask him to articulate those kinds of things. It's it's helping you understand how they think. What's what's the meaning of baptism? Ask your children that. What's the meaning of communion? These things they see the church go through. These continual practices. What is sin? What is sin? All of these kinds of things. Ask them those thought-provoking questions and then evaluate carefully in your own mind, your own thoughts, their answers to that. Answer. Help them. I remember asking my kids, what is hell like? What is hell like? And of course, the verses in Scripture, right? There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of my sons didn't hear that properly. He turned over to his brother and he said, did you hear that? There'll be weeping and no brushing your teeth. <laughs> I, I leaned over to my wife. 
And I said, that would be hell. <laughs> right? Ask him those things. Ask him about those kinds of things in her life, right? Uh, all of those things, even their own curiosities about things in the world and things in life are object lessons for you to help them. Um, there was a, when we lived in California, the church we went to was Grace Community Church, and right down the street is the largest Buddhist mosque, I think it's called a mosque, west of the Mississippi, temple west of the Mississippi, the largest. And every time we drove by that, my one son, Austin, would say, idol worship, idol worship, you know, he's a little guy. So we would ask him, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? What is idol worship? Why is it idol worship? Could other things be idol worship? Is the statue in that temple the idol, or is there other things that could be idol? It was all an object lesson to try to help him understand all of that. Because, but he heard us talk about that, talk about false teachers and idols and things like that. But that's not all that an idol is, right? We make idols out of all kinds of things. I didn't want him just pointing a finger at the monks and saying they're idol worshipers when in fact in my heart there's idols that I worship. So encourage those questions and look for those opportunities to, to listen to how they think, how they answer their questions. You know, I mean, at nighttime when my kids went to bed, it was a perfect opportunity for those times because no kid wants to go to bed when they're asked to go to bed. So you got a captive audience. You know, take 30 minutes, ask them those questions, provoke their minds. Have them ask questions because they're going to ask all those tough questions, right? Where did sin come from? Those kind of things. So be available, listen carefully, help answer their questions. So we teach that way. Also, number four, we have formal teaching time. Formal teaching times. This has kind of been pushed, I think, somewhat to a legalistic kind of entity in the church over the last 50 years, maybe less than that, but uh, because we have now made formal family devotions sometimes an idol of our life. Not that we shouldn't have family devotions, but sometimes we compare each other. Oh, you have family devotions? You don't have, oh, you don't have family devotions? You know, and we start to compare our spirituality based upon that. But what we mean when we say formal teaching times is that you should have times when you're formally teaching, but that doesn't mean that if you're not doing a morning Bible study with your family or an evening Bible study with your family or an afternoon, whatever it is, that you somehow are failing. Be creative. Sometimes you have to adjust times for that. Oftentimes our best family worship times in that kind of way, formal times of teaching, happened in the car. Especially when our kids were younger and I was going through seminary and working two different jobs and we were busy. I mean, I, I used to joke around that they only knew it was me when I turned around and they saw my back because I was either driving a car and they were in the back seat or I was going somewhere. That's how they knew me half the time. So we would use that time as formal teaching times, talking about those things and trying to teach them things from the scriptures. And oftentimes we failed at that, failed miserably oftentimes. But again, God is faithful. God does what 
what he does, and God honors faithfulness to him and uh, produces the result he's hoping he, he desires. So if that's how we teach, then what is it do we teach? What is it do we teach? And I'm just going to kind of go through these quickly because we only have a few minutes left because your teacher was late this morning. Russ kept me in the office too long. That's his fault. What do we teach, right? Well, most important, we teach the fear of God. Teach them to fear God, right? This should be the philosophy of your life. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we ought to be modeling that by way of example. We ought to be modeling that by what we talk about and, and how it reflects in our very language. We ought to be teaching about God. We ought to be learning about God. We ought to be fearing God, knowing God, imitating the wisdom of God. It's the reality of our life. And the fear of the Lord is, is a, it's not an activity, it's a state of mind, right? It's, it's, it's how our mind is to think. We have a reverential awe for God. It, 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 it drives or it, it overrides, if I should say, attitudes. It overrides our own desires, our own will, our own feelings, our own goals, all of those things. The fear of God is to override all of those things. So when it comes to our children, what we're really talking about is helping to develop in them a God consciousness. A God consciousness. God is there always. Remember years ago when I was at Grace Church, the college pastor was dealing with two young people who were in a relationship together and they were having struggles in the moral area and they had come to him and he said, well, I want you to know that last night when you were together, there was someone watching you. They were mortified. What? Are you kidding? He said, yeah, God was watching you. What was he doing? Trying to help them understand this God consciousness, this fear of the Lord that everywhere is there's God. I mean, how often do we sin willfully simply because we've set aside the God consciousness? Or we abuse and presume upon the grace of God. Right? We do the very things that Jesus would never have done and did not do even when Satan was tempting him after being in the desert for 40 days. If you are the Son of God, make these stones bread. Now, man does not live by bread alone, but, only, but, also, but by the food, right? Food of my Father, the Word of, the, the word of God. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take my own self-preservation in my own hand. I'm going to trust myself to the Father. Well, if you are the Son of God, come worship me and I'll give you all this stuff. No. No. Okay, well, then throw yourself off and, crush, and won't he give you angels to hold you up? No, no. Don't presume upon God. Don't test the Lord thy God. Don't presume upon that. It's a fear of God. It's a fear of God, a God consciousness. Developing that fear in our children 
involves a knowledge of God, a knowledge of God, knowing God, teach them to know God, which means we have to talk about his attributes, these kinds of things. And go to Psalm 139, it's a great psalm to, to walk through the reality that God has made us, his providence has brought every event about. We teach them God consciousness by worshiping God. We're going to talk about that in our morning service. Worshiping God. All of life is an opportunity to worship. We live that out. We demonstrate that by how we live. And then, of course, pleasing God. Pleasing God, number three. Pleasing God. But in addition to fearing God, we have to teach our children submission and obedience to authority. Boy, we live in an anti-authority society, don't we? Man, anti-authority. We have to teach our children to recognize and obey God-ordained authorities because in doing that, they obey God. That starts with parents, right? Children, obey obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. The first thing. Obey your parents. You may not like them. You may not like the rules they give, but obey them because it's right before God. Obey all those whom God has placed in authority over you as long as they're not commanding you to sin. So submission and obedience are huge realities when it comes to teaching our children concerning the fear of God. Obedience, both of those are taught by both precept, right? Here's what the Word of God says, and by example. How we do it. How we do it. So, is your life a good example of submission and obedience? That's the question. Because they're ultimately a heart matter. They're an issue of the heart. Out of the heart flows the wellsprings of life. These are heart issues. Submission, obedience are heart issues. So Proverbs 2, 1 to 7 just says this, and we'll end with this. My son, if you receive my sayings, treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. Then you will discover the knowledge of God. Why? Because the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. So we want to have that in our own heart, and we want to model that and challenge our children with that. Fearing God, submitting to him, obeying him. That was rapid, fast, furious. Maybe we'll touch on some of this next week when we come back a little bit, just as we get to Lesson 7. But are there any questions before we close in a word of prayer? Anybody have any questions?